Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslund, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to Think Humanities and our podcast preview of some of the books and authors uh, who we'll be visiting with for our Kentucky Book Festival. And those authors uh, will be at our Joseph Beth Bookseller location in Lexington Green on October the 21st, the Kentucky Humanities Kentucky Book Festival. Mark your calendars, October the 21st. One of those is University Press of Kentucky author, Dr. Eric Jackson, the 2023 recipient of the prestigious Thomas Clark Medallion for his work, An Introduction to Black Studies. The Thomas D. Clark Medallion is presented by the Thomas D. Clark Foundation, a private nonprofit that supports the University Press of Kentucky by helping fund scholarly books about Kentucky and its region. Each year, the foundation presents the Clark Medallion Book Award, which includes a financial award and a public event honoring the author. And as I mentioned, Dr. Eric Jackson is this year's recipient. He is a professor and uh, of history and associate dean in the College of Arts and Sciences at Northern Kentucky University. He is a former director of the Black Studies program at NKU, uh, has contributed to uh, a number of journals and periodicals over his uh, long teaching career. Dr. Jackson, I first of all want to say uh, welcome to our podcast. It's uh, it's uh, an honor to uh, to meet you for the first time and to have you on the podcast and uh, want to say congratulations on your book and the award. Thank you so much and thank you for inviting me. It seems to me that uh, at the very core of your book uh, is the question, has the American education system neglected to examine, discuss, and acknowledge the vast history of people of African descent who have played such a key role in the United States? Is that the key question that you're looking to answer? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think especially nowadays, but even before nowadays, it's it's been a, a situation in which folks kind of cherry pick what is important in American history. And it's usually what we already know. The founding fathers, not to say they didn't do anything uh, worthy of us not knowing, but as I as I have traveled and talked and written over the years. If you're going to talk about American history, you have to talk about all of it, not just the important people, the important um, founding fathers, white men, um, land-owning authority figures, um, but talk about it all. Talk about African-Americans, talk about Native people, talk about women, talk about poor people, talk about farmers, talk about the good, bad, and the ugly. Talk about it all. Why did this occur or when did it begin to occur that we were neglecting parts of our history? And 
Later on in our conversation, uh, I'm going to address this again with you about what's happening in modern day uh, when we're not teaching history uh, or we're neglecting uh, historical facts or pushing those in the background. Uh, so when did this occur that all of a sudden these uh, members of our uh, United States of America that were so important uh, all of a sudden became minor characters and then faded uh, away altogether? I don't think it was a time where where we started this. I think I think the the issue is that those who are in charge of the way in which knowledge is disseminated, how books are written, um, usually are not those folks who are um, in the backgrounds. It's usually folks who are in charge or those who write the history dominate the history. Um, it's easy to talk about presidents. It's easy to talk about people who have authority and power because it's easy to find their sources. They have legacies of their private papers, either in their estates or at the Library of Congress or at a local historical society. So some of it is just accessibility to sources that usually dictated what people wrote about, how they wrote about them. And usually it's it's those folks who are known, quote, famous figures. Uh, if you will, sir, in, in your, your vast research in all of these, and I, I would dare say that um, the, uh, the folks that listen to this podcast or that are familiar with uh, the history that we try to practice at Kentucky Humanities are uh, somewhat familiar with uh, even some of our Chautauqua uh, characters. They might not have heard of William Wells Brown until they see a Chautauqua performance, or uh, they might not have um, known of a great orator or a, a minister um, until they heard Alistine Turley, one of our uh, Speakers Bureau members, uh, former professor, uh, talk about uh, what was happening in the pulpit. But um, uh, some of the names you mentioned, and, and I just want you to, to, to throw out a, a couple. Uh, we, we, we know of Frederick Douglass. Um, we know of uh, some of the um, other scholars uh, that have uh, come along to try to um, enhance the study of, of African-American history. But then some of them, uh, and one of them that, that I learned from uh, your introduction to Black Studies is, uh, is Professor Huggins and what he was able to do to really revive this effort in uh, uh, bringing people along with him uh, in the area of African-American studies. Absolutely. You had, you had founding uh, folks who were engaged in the field of Black studies like Huggins and, and, and W.E.B. Du Bois and, and other folks who took a interest in Black studies that is different from Black history. Black studies comes out of the 1960s civil rights movement um, led by students, particularly who were in, in academic settings and universities on the, both the coast, but also in the Midwest and also in this area, uh, places like Louisville and, and, and UK, that they organized themselves and they didn't see themselves in the curriculums. And so 
it was not only a movement to empower people who were not in the academy, talking about civil, political, and voting rights. It was an avenue for folks to take their knowledge to solve problems in the community and create a canon or in a academic research focus area that took into consideration like Huggins does and other folks do, like I said, and, and focus on how do you solve problems in the community from taking the academic pursuits of your knowledge into a community and deal with issues like healthcare disparities? How do you deal with not seeing yourself in curriculums when you're talking about American education and not talking about a Booker T. Washington who, who is, a, is a pioneer in that area? How do you solve um, crime in a community when you talk about uh, the criminal justice system? And so you would take your academic resources and move it out into the community and write about problem solving. Uh, cite for us, uh, if you will, some of the um, the distortions, uh, uh, the stereotypes, the myths, as you in your words about persons of African descent and uh, uh, that prevailed and and uh, really deterred the teaching of black studies uh, early on. Uh, but frankly, not that long ago. I think if you talk about specific fields of, of psychology or sociology that's dominated by in its early form of a, a, a Euro, European, Eurocentric, Western philosophy that didn't take in consideration a different type of psychological philosophy or sociology that was had its origins that could be traced to the continent of Africa. And so... Um, that type of, of analysis was missing. Psychology and, and sociology was used in a certain time period, starting in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, to justify, in some cases, racial stereotypes of, of uh, intellectual inferiority of people of African descent. There were some, some weird kind of measuring head sizes uh, dictated how how big people's brains were. And uh, it's, it's called in some corners scientific racism to justify racial segregation. It's continuation that, that was done after enslavement ended with the 13th Amendment, moved into the Reconstruction period, Plessy v. Ferguson, um, setting up the doctrine of separate but equal in theory. I said in theory because separate didn't mean equal. It just meant separate. And so you had to justify those type of, of, of situations and legal structures, which is ironic because the one person who voted against Plessy versus Ferguson was Judge uh, Harlan, who was from the state of Kentucky, ironically. <laughs> Uh, the only one, Justice John Marshall Harlan. Exactly. It's fascinating to me. I mean, people mm -hmm. try to, in some cases, downgrade the history of Kentucky. I'm like, the most progressive person on that court at that time was Marshall Harlan, who said, that's not, not a good idea. I'm a vote against it. And it cost him. It cost him a lot. <laughs> the um, You write of um, and divide up some of your chapters into the eight disciplines of uh, of Black studies. You you have mentioned a couple of those already, um, uh, uh, the psychology of and, and the sociology of. Uh, 
Why, why the eight disciplines and how were you able to either narrow down or broaden uh, to reach the number of eight? So the, the eight, actually, initially, it was six disciplines in the 60s um, of, of, of not only psychology and sociology, but African-American history, African-American religion, um, um, Black feminist theory, which is a spinoff of of, 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 of feminist theory that was started in the, the 40s, excuse me, in the 50s and 60s. Then you have a whole nother school of African-American music, which is fascinating. And African-American arts, um, that which is another area. Um, the, so those areas of, of studies are important to understand that the field of Black studies is not just history. It's all these other disciplines that were expanded over the time, over time of black studies origins in the 60s and by the 70s and the 80s you added more to expand your horizon of, of, of understanding or misunderstanding as Carter G. Woodson writes in the miseducation of the Negro in 1932. Uh, tell us about Carter G. Woodson. Some of uh, our listeners might be familiar uh, with the name, uh, because uh, there are several schools uh, named after uh, him. Uh, in fact, one here in uh, Fayette County, uh, Kentucky, um, but many across the country too. Uh, tell us uh, about uh, his uh, his life. So Carter Carter Woodson was was the the founder of, of Black History um, Week initially, um, but eventually becomes Black History Month. So he. He comes from a, a, a an upbringing that that gives him the opportunity after a lot of struggle that we needed. We meaning people of, of African descent, some way to celebrate our history, and so he decided to create Black History Week um, to celebrate in February specifically because of the birthdays of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. Um, that that he wanted that month to celebrate, excuse me, that a week in that month initially to celebrate the history of African Americans. And it becomes Black History Month during the bicentennial of 1976. And so Carter, Carter G. Woodson is important because he's the founder of, of Black History Month of February. And there's a center obviously in 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 at Berea that's named after him. Why is the field of black uh, sociology so important to uh, to the area of uh, uh, of uh, African uh, Americans of, of people of color? Because the field has has a has a way of 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 understanding or justifying relationships, family relationships in particular. Um, that, for example, um, in the '60s there was a study. Um, put together by um, one of the senators, uh, Pat Moynihan, that talked mm-hmm. about the Black family, that enslavement itself, and I'll explain that term later, why I use enslavement instead of slavery here in a minute, that enslavement itself was so devastating to people of African descent that it was the, the there was a great need of the federal government to create social policies to help the African-American family stay together. So the question for folks was, was that a way of having African-Americans rely on the federal government to maintain their family structure 
Was it just a policy decisions that came out of the sky? You had some scholars on both sides of the fence saying it, it, it was a detrimental impact on the Black family of the, the, the Moynihan report. And other folks were saying it did not. People like, um, um, a, um, gosh, I can't even think today. E. Franklin Frazier was yes. one of those folks mm -hmm. who made that argument. So you have uh, different interpretations of the Black family. But sociology is important because you're talking about um, social relationships, family structures, how they develop over time, and how we um, understand ourselves from a sociological perspective. And that debate goes on today. Um, I, I am assuming that... Um, uh, the urban-rural divide or uh, urban renewal uh, all played a part in uh, the family structure and the way uh, gentrification, um, uh, all of those things are still being debated uh, very much so today. Absolutely, particularly in, in, in urban centers. I, 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 I had a month ago a person in uh, the Cincinnati Enquirer because the, the city of Cincinnati decided to uh, apologize for gentrification of, of of the west side of Cincinnati, which is where African Americans formulated their origins after they migrated to the city. That the the city itself had created a plan that divided that community, and then the 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 highway came and 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 made more devastation in that community. And so the mayor of Cincinnati. And some city council members apologized for that policy. And, and my name came up because I've, I've done some studies on, quote, gentrification. And the issue becomes, what, what does an apology really mean? Because you, had, you have devastated an entire generations of people. Um, and my response was, that's the first step, because... Um, Sometimes money is important, but recognizing the devastation first and creating some avenues of healing um, is also important. And it's not necessarily money per se, because you could set up a way to capture that history of that community from the folks who are still there with some programs of oral history, of African-American historical preservation, which is one of my focus now, of how do you preserve a community of color um, when the buildings themselves are not there in a field that talks about historical preservations and a lot of their focus is on physical buildings. Uh, Dr. Jackson, how do you do that when so many of our elders uh, have passed and are passing away uh, on a daily basis? How do you then capture uh, the stories um, that should have already been recorded uh, and historical, in fact, uh, when we don't have those stories? Well, in my humble opinion, one place to start is to empower our young people because uh, young people and, and some older people and most people have access to, to phones. And a lot of times these phones have devices where you can record or record oral stories, or you can take pictures of, of, of communities that may be still there, or you can empower folks in the communities uh, through churches and other institutions that they may have old pictures 
in their attics or in their churches and just go through them and put labels on them and 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 have physical uh, artifacts that you could put together to start collecting that history. So it doesn't have to be a building. It could be a picture. It could be a program. It could be any physical artifact artifact that has a historical importance to that community and start collecting these, these items and empower people in the community of how to do that because they might look at it as just, oh, that's just a piece of paper. But I, as a historian or a scholar, may look at it as, wow, that has an historical impact on that community. But you need to empower folks of how to analyze that kind of stuff. In um, more modern times, you write of um, of movements. Um, you write of the of the Black Power movement. Uh, remind us uh, of um, when that began. Uh, who were the principals, and uh, what? was their um, effort in the United States? So the just a, the, a quick, a, a short history. So the, 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 the modern civil rights movement uh, of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s were led by not only people like uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., but a number of African-American women, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, Septima Clark, all folks, uh, women of color that people don't normally talk about, that they were they're pushing towards using the law and organized protests, nonviolent, to change the law. And so you had the passage of, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And so the law changed. So you can wasn't legally able to do things that you had done before against people of of African descent. However, what folks were discovering is the law is one thing. Enforcing the law and the vestiges of racial segregation is a whole nother thing. And so the Black Power Movement was kind of the next step because people were still being treated with disrespect, that the law still was not equal in the playing field. So you had people like uh, Malcolm X, um, uh, the Black uh, Panther movement that comes out of Oakland. Those folks are part of the Black Power movement that they were talking about issues that had echoes from people like Marcus Garvey in the 20s that said African-Americans needed to take care of their own communities and empower themselves in the best way they could and and didn't necessarily want to integrate because the argument was integration wasn't the best way to go. That's not to say all African-Americans believe that, but there was a segment and a vocal segment of folks who were tired, frustrated, said the law change wasn't changing the culture of the United States at all or not fast enough. Although it uh, garnered headlines, it was mainly centered in uh, the urban areas and in um, uh, populated metropolitan areas of our country. Uh, Did it uh, have an effect in other parts of the country, uh, whether they be rural or just smaller cities across the United States? 
I think it did in some pockets. I think it it it, it forced folks to rethink the impact of just changing the law. It forced folks to reassess what did integration really mean? Or as I talk about in one of those chapters in my book on African-American education, that the Brown decision of 1954 um, talked about and, and made it illegal to segregate in public schools. So the question became, um, because the, the the decision was you couldn't segregate in public school and Brown two in 55 stated you would integrate schools with all deliberate speed, which was a Supreme Court decision. The question becomes, what does all deliberate speed mean? And what does that look like? Meaning that's why you had a Cincinnati not integrating into the 70s. And you talk about Brown in the 50s, or you have a Dallas not integrating into 69 or you have Boston going through their whole issue of integration. You have an entire South rebelling against Brown. And so the law was changing, but their structures were not changing. And so the impact of integration was in question, which again helps to um, intensify this movement to the black power phase. Um, not to say that they had all the answers either. Uh, it's just, there's no roadmap, as I tell people, when you talk about American history. You are talking about a country that was created, um, what? So the American Revolution started in 1775. It's over in 1783. So from 1783 to 2023 is what? 200 and I want to say. We're getting close to 250. 50 years. <laughs> yeah. If you talk about world history, we're a young country. I mean, it's not thousands of years like the continent of Africa or Asia or or Latin America. This is a young country that we're going through some growing pains in 250 years. I mean, that's how I look at history. It's it's we're going through the growing pains as a young country. We have not figured it out. In this young country, um, Dr. Jackson, why are we questioning and we see some trying to alter the course of history or at least the teaching of history today. And in your career and in your study, your scholarship, which dates back to um, the Middle Passage, I'm, I'm sure, maybe beyond that, uh, did, did we have incidences of um, not only uh, ignorance of, uh, of what was occurring uh, with African-Americans, uh, the enslaved, enslaved. And by the way, you were going to clarify that uh, for us. Um, but the question is, uh, were there were there other times in our history when somebody stood up, uh, a governor of a state and presidential candidate, and said, uh, you're a history teacher not allowed to teach this uh, in, in our school system anymore? Uh, we, 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 we don't want you to teach that anymore. It, has that happened before, except in Nazi Germany? Well, 
Well, it's, it's happened in different time periods. It's happened in the United States prior to the American Civil War, during the, the antebellum periods, 1850s, 18, uh, 1850s, early 1860s. It happened during the, the Scopes trials when people were talking about evolution. We don't want to talk about evolution versus a, a Christian understanding of history. It's like the cycles that we have gone through over time. And I think one of the, the big concerns is we haven't come to grips with understanding all the aspects of our history as a group of people. I think we piecemeal histories. We've reached a point where we're trying to, again, cherry pick parts of history to make our own narrative because nobody wants to feel bad. History is not about feelings, in my opinion, not about feelings at all. It's about making sure that the story of this country is as inclusive, understandable as possible so we don't make the same mistakes we made in the past. Because if you analyze the history of the United States, its early origins from native peoples to the colonization period, inclusiveness of people was there from the beginning. Not to say that it was all good, just to say it was there. <laughs> but I would also think you would agree that along with those uh, attendants of what we should be doing would be uh, accuracy uh, and fact-based and and to, to always strive for the truth, which uh, historians have always tried to do. And when somebody comes along and tries to alter that or deviate from what we know is the truth, that's what I think is upsetting to so many people. Well, the, the truth is, is, is a slippery slope. I, what I strive for is... And what I what I don't think people are sophisticated enough to understand is truth is what you can prove with evidence. Mm -hmm. And so show me the evidence to what your claims are, meaning the truth usually are are dates like there's not a debate around when the American Revolution started and when it ended. There's not a debate around when the Civil War started and when it ended. There's not a debate around when World War II started, when it ended. When you can go through all the wars. There's no debates around those. The debates are normally the interpretations of why did it start? Mm -hmm. What was its impact? How did it impact people? What's its it's it's residue over time. What did we learn from it? And usually, the more information you uncover, your interpretations change. What we have now is people cherry pick even facts, <laughs> saying yeah. your facts is different than mine. Yeah, your mm -hmm. facts can't be different <laughs> than mine if you're talking about evidence. <laughs> Dr. Eric Jackson's uh, book is an introduction to black studies. Uh, it is the Clark Medallion winner for 2023 from the University Press of Kentucky and the Thomas D. Clark 
uh, Foundation, uh, Dr. Jackson. It's it's been a pleasure. What do you want people to to walk away with after um, reading your introduction to Black Studies? I want them to walk away with the understanding that the field of Black Studies, like the field of um, African American history, is American history. It's all folded together like a salad bowl. We're all in this thing together. The more you learn, the better we are. Here, here, Dr. Eric Jackson, uh, we appreciate uh, his uh, uh, input and uh, his uh, visit with us on our Think Humanities podcast. We'll be back with another guest after we hear from our great underwriters, the uh, Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing at Spalding University. At Spalding University's Low Residency MFA program, creative writing students come to campus for an exciting week of learning each semester, followed by independent study from home that fits in with work and family life. Write prolifically, explore across genres, gain editorial experience on a literary journal, and become part of a lifelong writing community. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. This is Think Humanities, a podcast of Kentucky Humanities. Once again, the Kentucky Book Festival is coming up soon on October 21st. 150 authors representing a variety of writing will be at Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington Green. And one of those authors is Amreta Chakrabarty Myers and her book, The Vice President's Black Wife, The Untold Life of Julia Chen. Dr. Myers is the Ruth N. Halls Associate Professor of History and General Studies at Indiana University in Bloomington. She is the author of Forging Freedom, Black Women and the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum, Charleston. Dr. Myers, uh, welcome, first of all, to the podcast. And to begin with, let me just, um, let's talk about the the main players, the uh, protagonist uh, plural uh, in your uh, thoroughly researched uh, history uh, of the time. Tell us, who was Julia Chen? Well, that's the $64 million question, isn't it? Who was Julia Chen? Uh, so Julia was an enslaved woman. And from the research that I've done, she was uh, enslaved actually on the Johnson Station by Robert and Jemima Suggett Johnson, Richard Johnson's parents. Um, the senior Johnsons had come out from Virginia to help settle the Kentucky Territory. And uh, her and her mother, Henrietta, were uh, enslaved by Robert and Jemima, uh, as well as her brother, Daniel. We don't know exactly when Julia was born. We don't have any birth records for her, which is not uncommon, obviously, for enslaved folks. Uh, what we do know is um, about um, 1810, when oral testimonies tell us that she was about 13 or 14 years old, uh, Julia and her brother Daniel were both transferred over to Richard um, as part of his inheritance um, from his father. Uh, Richard at that point was building Blue Spring Farm, which was just a couple of miles away from his parents' property. 
uh, not too far from Great Crossing Baptist Church, which still um, is in existence today um, in the area. So <clears throat> as he was getting his um, plantation up and running, he needed laborers. So his father transferred upwards of about 100 laborers to him. So Julia and Daniel uh, were both transferred with, um, you know, almost 80, between 80 and 100 other laborers to, to Johnson. Uh, but her mother was not transferred. So both Julia and Daniel had to leave their mother behind when they went to Blue Spring. And um, at that point, Julia became Richard's housekeeper. So she oversee the, uh, you know, became, began overseeing the property, the household staff, um, you know, buying and selling all of the food, all of, you know, preparing, taking care of all of the guests, um, overseeing all of the very large soirees and balls and parties that Richard Johnson was famous for, um, disciplining the household laborers. I mean, she had, she carried the keys to the plantation. Um, she apparently had access to the lines of credit and household cash. She, she had a, it was an enormous responsibility because Richard Johnson wasn't married. He was a bachelor and he was a politician. He was a congressman, he was a senator, and he would eventually become vice president of the United States. So he lived in Washington, D.C. for six months of every year, uh, which meant that when he was away, Rich, Julia ran everything. She ran the plantation, the sawmills, the grist mills, the tavern that was on the property. She oversaw the field hands. Uh, so there was a, you know, it was a huge business enterprise, Blue Spring Farm. It was 2,000 acres at that time. And everything um, was, you know, was her responsibility. She, the housekeepers had enormous responsibilities back in the day, uh, particularly if their owners were not married. But what we also know is that within a year of her arrival at Blue Spring, her and Richard um, began a sexual relationship um, that would last for almost a quarter century and produce two daughters. And how old was she when she first came to the farm? So she was about 14 and Richard at that point was in his early 30s. So there's a substantial age difference between the two, um, which I think is really important to keep in mind. He is her enslaver. He owns her. Um, and um, <clears throat> there's about a 16 year age difference because we know that Johnson is born in, in 1780. And um, according to oral testimony, uh, Rich, uh, Julia is born in about 1796, 1797, give or take. So she's about 14. He's about 30. So um, some have, um, and you write about this in your book, some have questioned uh, your use of the word wife uh, in referring to Julia Chin as, as uh, Richard Mentor Johnson's uh, wife. Can you talk a little bit about that? No, absolutely. I'm glad you asked the question. One of the reasons I use the word, well, there's several reasons I use the word wife. One um, is the fact that Richard himself actually refers to Julia as his wife. Um, he never marries a white woman. Uh, he never marries anyone. Um, and during the time that he and Julia are together, which is about 23 years until she passes away during a cholera epidemic in 1833, um, there doesn't appear to be any other woman in his life other than Julia. And um, in letters to other people that Richard writes, he refers to Julia as his as his bride, um, as his wife. That's that's the first reason. The second reason is, is that Julia does all of the labor and the work that a wife would do. 
she not only bears his children, she has access to his cash and his lines of credit. She oversees the enslaved laborers. She does all of the um, work of like taking care of the house, um, the enslaved laborers on the property, um, all of the, the physical, reproductive, sexual labor that a wife would do, she does. Um, and I think that that's really important to understand is that wives, you know, carry an enormous physical, emotional, mental, sexual, you know, burden of labor. And the labor that Julia Chin carried was the labor of a wife. Um, and so do we know if she did that willingly. Oh, and that that's, of course, um, the perfect question. There's no, even though she was literate, her and her daughters were all literate. And there were letters going back and forth to Johnson when he was in D.C. But none of her um, letters have survived, neither, and neither have the letters of her daughters survived. But Johnson refers to um, the women's letters in his own letters to other people. So we have no way of knowing how Julia actually felt. Um, about Richard. Um, I never talk about this as a romance. I never talk about it as a love story. There's people in Kentucky who would love if I did. And I say, no, I'm a historian. I deal in facts. I don't know how she felt. I do know um, what she did. And so she performs the labor of a wife. I therefore accord her um, the respect of the terminology of a wife. But even white wives, there's no way of knowing if white wives necessarily enjoyed, right, being married to the men they were married to. Marriages in the 18th and 19th centuries were most often, um, you know, arranged by parents. They were arranged by families. They were marriages that were of convenience. Of convenience that were supposed to actually, um, you know, increase power for families because they brought together you know, land and resources and increased and, and increased wealth for families, increased political prominence and power for families. Women's wants and needs were almost never um, sort of taken into consideration, particularly in the South. There were also great age differences in those marriages. Women were often married off by age 16 in the South um, to men who were much older than themselves because it was a woman's fertility that was important and a man's financial stability that was important. So it, none of those things are necessarily out of sort of whack, but what Julia's sort of, I mean, how she felt about Richard is never known. We don't know if she liked him, cared about him. What we do know is that she was able to utilize this relationship to make a better life for her daughters and her grandchildren than she most likely would have ever been able to do otherwise. Maybe not necessarily for herself, but certainly for her descendants. Johnson was a complicated figure in himself, wasn't he? That's an understatement. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I think that that's absolutely complicated is a, a generous word. Um, I think a lot of people, um, when they read my book, um, I like to say that my book is kind of this sunshine to shadows kind of book, because in the beginning, it seems very hopeful. 
Um, he seems like this, you know, good guy, right? Because he's not like Thomas Jefferson. He's not like Henry Clay. He's not like these other men from the 18th and 19th centuries who are having sexual relationships with Black women, but um, they hide them. They lie about them. Um, they, you know, have adulterous relationships, you know, when they're married to other women. Johnson never marries um, a white woman. He's open about his relationship with Julia. They live together. He acknowledges her, acknowledges their, you know, their daughters, has his daughters educated, arranges good marriages for them, gives them land, gives them cash, gives them enslaved laborers. He seems like a very, I mean, he's very upfront about who he is. So he seems like a very different kind of person. And in many ways he is. Um, but he's also someone who owns almost a 100 enslaved laborers. He utilizes enslaved labor to run his plantation. He has his enslaved laborers flogged when they misbehave. He actually sends um, bounty hunters after enslaved laborers when they run away. When enslaved laborers misbehave, not only are they flogged, he also has them sold downriver to New Orleans. Uh, when he goes into debt, he mortgages slaves to, to make sure that he gets himself out of financial you know, penury. So this is not someone who is really different from other white male slaveholders of his day in pretty much every other respect. And in fact, when Julia passes away, this is a man who will take up with other young light-skinned enslaved women on his plantation very quickly like within just months of Julia's passing he will Richard will be involved with another young light-skinned enslaved woman on his plantation and that is a relationship that is not in any way shape or form an alliance or a partnership the way Julia's might be seen as it's very much a coerced relationship because that young woman runs away She's clearly not happy. She tries to escape. And when she does escape, um, Richard sends a posse after her to recapture her and bring her back. And when she is captured, um, he has her beaten. And local um, authorities tell us that not only is she beaten, but he has her sold um, in order to punish her. So Richard is, um, to say he's complicated, I think that people like to think that because he has this one relationship with this one woman and has these daughters that he's different. I think that like many people, he makes an exception for, you know, for Julia and his, and, and his daughters, but the exception doesn't defy the rule. He still sees black people and black women um, as people who work for him, um, who he can abuse and take advantage of. And these these three women are are the exceptions to the to the rule. That begs another question about why, but I want to return to that and, and leave that um, he would be seen in public uh, in uh, the farm area or in Georgetown. Uh, was there a Georgetown at the time? Was it established as a town? Yes. Georgetown, very tiny. But it was it was established. Yes. So he would be seen in, in public there. Would he ever take her to Washington? But there's no there's no records that I've ever discovered that 
uh, reveal that Julia or either of her daughters ever visited Washington. Certainly everybody that Richard worked with in Washington knew of Julia. They knew of his daughters. Um, and in fact, it became political fodder during his vice presidential campaign in 35, 36. But there's no um, there's no evidence that the women ever visited him in Washington. So tell us a little bit more about uh, Blue Spring Farm and, and the Choctaw Academy and uh, which is located in Scott County outside of Georgetown and, and the relationship there and and how uh, Johnson and, and Julia um, were influential there. So Choctaw Academy uh, is the first federally funded um, boarding school for indigenous boys in um, the country. And Richard Johnson uses his political influence as Senator of Kentucky um, to have the school housed on his property on Blue Spring Farm. Uh, and Choctaw Academy is really unique because not only is it the first federally funded boarding school for indigenous boys in the U.S., um, it is it also it's housed directly um, within the Department of War. Right. The only other boarding school at the time, the only other academy at the time that functions the same way um, is West Point. Right. So it's it's these you know two very intriguing academies that are funded and run out of the Department of War. And um, Johnson is really doing this because he is, right, he's always financially struggling. He loves to throw these huge parties. He loves to loan money. Like he really likes to be sort of like the patron saint of Scott County, Kentucky, right? Um, so he, he throws money around, um, you know, loans money, has these parties, but he's always skating on the edge of bankruptcy. And so having the academy on his property, he sees this as a financial windfall, right? Because the Choctaw Nation and the government, federal government are going to be sending money to help, you know, sort of fund the school. And he sees this as a way of like pocketing all of the all of this money, um, especially because he can use enslaved labor on his own property to help, you know, up, keep up the school. So he he navigates to have the property on you know, the school on his property. It creates an enormous amount of labor for Julia and her daughters and the enslaved laborers of Blue Spring Farm. This is already, like I said, a 2000 acre property. They're growing corn, they're growing hemp, they have sawmills, grist mills, the tavern on the property that Richard has. And Richard's gone for six months every year. So who's doing all the work? It's Julia, right? It's Julia who does all the labor. She oversees the household staff. She oversees the field, the field workers. The field workers aren't crazy about reporting to a black woman, let's be clear. Now you put into the mix Choctaw Academy. And when it opens in the, in the 1820s, it only has um, you know, 25 to 30 students. It will grow to 200 students very quickly. Mm -hmm. And Richard isn't there for six months of the year. And keep in mind, these are all teenage boys, right? This is a boarding school for boys. And they come from Choctaw Nation, but other nations as well. Most of, most of these Indian nations are nations that practice um, slavery. And they've learned from watching European nations and the United States, they've transitioned from 
you know, enslaving other Native Americans as prisoners of war, they transitioned to race-based chattel slavery of African people. So they come to Blue Spring with this idea that Black people are to be enslaved and that Black people are lesser than because that's what they've learned from watching white people, from watching, you know, you, you know, Americans and 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 British people and, and Spanish and French people. And so then they come to Blue Spring to get an education and the, the, the farm is being, and the school are being run for six months a year by black women, black women who behave as if they're free, who dress like free people, who are literate like free people, who have access to money and lines of credit and, and who are ordering, ordering everybody around. And there's all kinds of trouble that erupt. I mean, some of the trouble is what you would expect from teenage boys, right? They they break curfew, they sneak off the property, they like um, they get drunk. I mean, this is like what you expect from teenage boys when they leave home from the first time. But then there's also other serious things that happen because there's there's clashes and conflicts between the enslaved laborers who are doing all the work, right? They're cooking for the for the school, they're cleaning the rooms, they're cleaning up in the dining hall three times a day they're doing they're sewing all the clothing for the students julia is running the medical ward because she has she has medical skills and she's taking care of the health problems for the students so the students are like running they they're not separate from the this is a even though it's a 2000 acre farm the students are not separate from the laborers because especially the house staff they're running into them several times a day all day long um, the you know the buildings and the house build the house buildings and the school buildings are close together. They see them all the time, and there's clashes that happen all the time because the students think they're better than the enslaved laborers and the house staff. And the house staff are like, "Who do you think you are? We're doing everything to take care of you. Keep a civil tongue in your head." And there's there's all kinds of like verbal exchanges, but then physical assault, assaults begin as well. And there's also some sexual assaults that happen where where the male students uh, sexually assault some of the enslaved women. There's also consensual sexual relationships between the women of Blue Spring and the and the students, but there's 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 all kinds of things going on and Richard and Julia are just beside themselves because for some whatever reason it hadn't occurred to Richard that this would happen when he invites upwards of 200 young native men to his plantation and he takes off for 6 months. And he leaves Julia and his daughters who are growing up in charge of what's really a volatile mix of people, enslaved people who are already angry that they're being ordered around by another enslaved woman. And now native students who are like, who do these women think they are telling us what to do? Because back home, they're the sons of chiefs and elders and they back home actually own enslaved people, black enslaved people. Uh, how long did the, um, did the academy uh, last and um, how long did, did Julia have authority uh, over the academy? I, I would imagine as long as it was on the farm. Yeah, and the academy actually um, out survives Julia because Julia. Really? So it was okay. that long? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the academy opens up in the 1820s and it doesn't shut down until the 1840s. Wow. And, and Julia passes away in 1833 during during a massive cholera epidemic. And in fact, what happens is that that cholera epidemic sweeps Kentucky, right? It sweeps Lexington and then it comes to Georgetown and then it comes to Choctaw Academy and Blue Spring Farm. 
and Julia actually sets up a cholera ward and she's taking care of the students who have fallen ill and the, and the, and the laborers on the farm. And she saves many, many lives. Like there are students who fall sick and die, farm laborers who fall sick and die, enslaved people on Blue Spring Farm who fall sick and die. And after weeks of nursing the sick and saving many lives, she herself contracts cholera and passes away you know, during the epidemic. So, but I mean, really, if it hadn't have been for her and two other Native, older Native students who she, you know, sort of helps to sort of, she, she commandeers them and nurses and, and they help her sort of, you know, take care of the, the sick and the dying, there, it would have been even worse. But the the call the um the the academy continues on under the charge of her younger daughter Adeline after she passes away Adeline steps into her shoes and helps to run the farm and the academy after her mother dies and she kind of she becomes the you know the go between between Richard and Blue Spring once Julia passes away because Imogene the older daughter has married and moved off of the farm to her own property um, the Pence family par farm is still um, in existence, actually, in um, in uh, Georgetown, but it's um, across the river and um, about a mile or two away. But Adeline is still on the property and she's handling things. But the academy doesn't shut down until the 40s. And Thomas Henderson, who's a rotating preacher at Great Crossing Baptist Church, he lives on the property with his family as headmaster. And so... He's headmaster, so he takes care of the students from a teaching and disciplinary perspective, but Julia and, and the enslaved laborers are responsible for the physical maintenance and upkeep in terms of food, clothing, shelter, um, you know, all of that sort of. So, you know, Thomas isn't Thomas and the teachers are not responsible for that end of things because this is a boarding school. They handle educational aspects. Mm -hmm. Julia and the enslaved, really the enslaved women of Blue Spring are handling the the day-to-day -day maintenance and upkeep to sort of make sure the students are, are staying alive. With all the problems that you outlined uh, that, that occurred uh, at uh, the academy, were there some positive aspects of, of what happened? I mean, over the span of 20-odd of years, uh, were, were the Native Americans educated in a way that, that they went on to some... Um, success or prominence uh, or uh, was it to um, uh, we hear the criticism of the uh, of the uh, Indian schools as they're called uh, today in in our uh, history of them of our knowledge of them uh, to Englishize the the Native Americans uh, was that uh, attempt at Choctaw Academy so you know this is the the, the thing with Choctaw Academy is that it's the first school of its kind in many respects. The Choctaw Nation wanted this school to be opened. They asked for it to be opened. Um, they engaged in treaty negotiations in Washington, D.C. And one of the things that came out of the treaty was um, the founding of this particular school. But I really want to be cautious that we understand that, um, right, over the course of, you know, years and decades, the Choctaw lost millions of acres of land um, to the federal government. And so 
the Choctaw are not bargaining from a position of strength, right? The, the school comes out of these treaty negotiations because the Choctaw are like, we are tired of having missionary schools on our, you know, that we're sending our children to or that are on our land where the only thing that our children are learning are vocational trades and the Bible. What we want is the kind of education that white children get. We want our sons, especially the sons of our elders and our chiefs, to be trained the way white children are trained in the, in a classical education. We want them to receive all the same, the languages, the sciences, the math, uh, so that they can then come home step into becoming the chiefs and leaders and elders of our nations in order to be able to better, not only better lead our nations, but better engage in tactical treaties with white people, right? Their hope is that schools like Choctaw Academy will be able to better serve them in the long run by helping them protect their land and protect their people and preserve their culture by giving their kids an educational edge because their kids will be able to better compete with white people because they'll have a white education. So it's a it's the they're like, you know, we're we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place because we're losing all this land, you know, and so if we can get we don't want this mission, these, this, these missionary schools and this vocational training. And so Choctaw Academy, Thomas Henderson is, um, so Richard, you know, Johnson, it, you know, it knows Henderson, right, from Great Crossing Baptist Church. Um, Johnson's family helps to found Great Crossing Baptist Church, and that's how he knows Henderson. And Henderson um, is a very well-educated man. He's extremely well-rounded. And Henderson believes um, that it's important to educate everybody. He believes in educating Black people as well. He believes that everyone should know how to be literate and know how to read and write, know how to read the scriptures for themselves. So uh, when, you know, Johnson and Julia actually have a reason for asking Henderson to be headmaster of Choctaw Academy, though, it's because this way they can also educate their daughters. Right, because what Henderson is doing is during the day he um, is headmaster of the academy, and in the evening and on weekends he comes to the main house, and he he tutors Adeline and Imogene as well as other members of the house staff, most of whom are Julia Chin's relatives. Um, these are going to be her um, her sisters, her brothers, her sister in laws, and her nieces and nephews. And so the extended Chin family is getting educated alongside her, her daughters. Um, and so are the Choctaw students getting a good education? They're absolutely getting a good education because Henderson is a very, very well-educated man. He also hires good assistant teachers to work with him as the school grows um, because he can't do all of this himself. Um, and they do get a good education, um, but I have I always sort of have a caveat there about how the school comes about and what the long term goals are that um, that the Choctaw wanted, um, and that we have to be really careful about um, the fact that this was done from a position of duress and um, not a position of power. Well, it's a, a fascinating story, uh, Dr. Myers. It, Dr. Myers is the 
author of the uh, the Vice President's Black Wife, the untold story of, of Julia Chin. And uh, it's also the untold story of so many other uh, characters and, and entities uh, uh, that, that she would like to spend some time talking with you uh, about at uh, the uh, Kentucky Book Festival on October the 21st. She'll be uh, one of our authors there and uh, her book will be for sale and you can talk with her and and get her autograph. It, it really is a fascinating story. And I think we must uh, also mention, although it's not open to the public, uh, but uh, the farm is still uh, in Scott County, the Choctaw Academy, the remnants of it uh, uh, still stand. Um, uh, it, the story, um, uh, although uh, a part of our history from many, many years ago, is uh, still alive today, and uh, and you've done such a good job of of making it interesting. And I think now you have told me uh, uh, some time ago, uh, while the book was being uh, finalized, this is really the first definitive uh, biography, if you will, or in depth work on Julia Chen. It is. Um... When I first started, I've been working on the book for 12 years, which is kind of hard to imagine now that I stop and think about it. But when I first started looking into Julia's life and began doing preliminary research um, on her, I realized that um, the last, I mean, the last biography of, of Johnson had been written in 1932 uh, by Leland Meyer, who had worked at Georgetown College. But there had been no full length work done on Julia Chin at all. There had been some brief um, articles. There had been um, some really mostly internet um, style work done on her and on Johnson. A lot of it was rather prurient and voyeuristic. Um, and it was very sort of sensationalism, you know, style, sensationalist style journalism you know, you know, the vice president and his concubine, the vice president and his mulatto mistress, that sort of thing. Um, but it was, there was no um, archivally researched, um, you know, serious examination of Julia that centered Julia and that centered her daughters. Because my book is not an examination of Richard Johnson. Of course, Johnson is a part of the book because you can't talk about Julia and her daughters without talking about Richard. Um, I mean, that would be impossible, but um, that's not, that was not the goal of my work. I'm a Black woman's historian. That's what I do. Um, and I focus particularly on the lives of Black women in the era of slavery in the American South. Um, so that, that was really, um, you know, the, the focus of the last dozen years of my life has been to excavate Julia's life and Adeline and Imogene's life to the best of my ability um, so that we can if we listen very closely, try to hear um, hear the faint echoes of their lives um, as best as we can. Well, we're um, anxiously awaiting the book, uh, and I know you are too after 12 years. And again, uh, thank you so much uh, for being our guest today, and we look forward to seeing you in person uh, at the book festival. I know a lot of people will want to come out and, and meet you in person, so uh, we look forward to that uh, on October the 21st. I'm very excited as well. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.